Welcome to Staying at the Table. We are friends and community and part of a church called Cornerstone Christian Fellowship in Westchester, Pennsylvania. Despite our many differences, we aim to stay at the table, which means we don't walk away from each other when we disagree. We believe the best of relationship comes when we're willing to listen to each other, showing love even when we continue to see the world differently. In today's episode, we talk about the process of deconstruction and reconstruction of our theological approach. I hope you enjoy. Welcome back to Staying at the Table. I'm Matt Kistler. I'm here with Tracy Saletta and James Beatty. Today, it's pretty cold. So I think it's time for an icebreaker. Oh, no. <laughs> he tricked me. Yeah, you weren't ready for no. it. No. Okay, so this one is a relevant icebreaker, and we may came, come around in our conversation to this point, but stay with me. What is a tradition that you enjoyed this Christmas season? And I can start. I'll give you a, a few moments. Um, this is a new tradition, one of our... Um, pastors here at Cornerstone talked about Advent and talked about setting aside a time each day to remember Advent. Um, I've done Advent calendars in the past with the kids, but it was always kind of something to just get over with. And so this year we tried something different. We found um, a collection of Advent readings, but to start, we did the three breaths, which is an exercise that, Tracy, you've really fallen in love with, where, you know, centering yourself, putting your mind on Christ, feeling where you are. And we lit the candles. We'd turn off the lights. We'd have the Christmas tree on. And then we'd light little candles just as a, a way to set aside the moment. And it was really beautiful. And it reminded me of kind of the holiness of that liturgy, of that kind of tradition and pattern. And the kids really loved connecting with that. They'd say, when are we doing Advent? And, you know, it was just, we all knew this was a time we were going to stop. We weren't going to think about homework. We weren't going to think about all the things we had to do. We are just going to breathe and remember God's love for us. Wow. So that was a really special That's really beautiful. tradition. That, and I want to shout out to Kevin Kevin Brisbane, you know where you are. Yeah, that's really beautiful. Uh, so the tradition that my family has is always, since we live remote, like 10 hours remote from our families, um, we we always run this balance of having of going to visit uh, either my family or Janice's family, my wife's family, uh, that live in different cities. And then how do we establish a firm foundation for our nuclear family. And so we, we try to never lose track of that. So the tradition that we have and that I enjoy is before we go to any of the extended family, we have a day to just our nuclear family mm. where we would open our gifts, talk, laugh, uh, share conversations regarding what we value throughout the year mm -hmm. and what we like about our own individual family. And so we have an evening just for us to exchange gifts and talk about us mm -hmm. before we get to extended families on either side. So that's our tradition, and that's one of the things I really enjoyed this year and all year. Yeah, I like that. I think we should steal that one. 
because we're trying to figure out, you know, some of our extended family traditions are, are changing, you mm-hmm. know, as, as parents get older, their ability to host, you know, some of the patterns just don't work anymore. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we're at that time where you have to start your own and it's kind of been a blank slate on Christmas day. We're like, well, what do we do? You know, mm-hmm. like it's supposed to be this thing and how do we set it up? But I like that time of reflecting and having yeah. family time intentionally. How yeah. about you? I think we're in a time of that change because we have our first grandchild and, you know, we usually gather as a family Christmas morning and spend time together and open our gifts and just be together as our nuclear family. Um, But I think this year it's, it's changing. Mm -hmm. And, and so I think like next year we're going to try to find something else, a new tradition to start. But I would say one of my personal favorite is when we have a Christmas Eve service here is the silent night at the end when we all have Mm. candles lit Mm. and stand around the church and the very last part of the verse is sung in a cappella and it's just always just a sweet pausing moment um, that's just lovely. So I I would say that is something that I... I really enjoy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's something. I look forward to that. And I really appreciated this year. You know, my church tradition was right after Silent Night, you're going to have joy to the world. And there's a lot of remember, memory for me in that specific pattern. But it always felt a little jarring. Yeah. Because <laughs> it was yeah. like silent and dark, yeah. and then it's like all the lights are on, yeah. the organ fires up, yeah. and it's like, whoa, I guess the moment's over. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, and, and I like this time, I found it particularly meaningful that to just kind of let Silent Night be the, the close and yeah. let that be the end and not feel like we had to rush out into the light and the... Hoopla. Hoopla. Yeah. 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 Those are dramatically different things. Yeah. Very different. <laughs> and energy. <laughs> So I wanted to, I've been thinking a little bit about, we, we've had a couple episodes where we talk about deconstruction. We talked about deconstructing the Bible in some ways. And I want to think about reconstruction and the critical role. How do we reconstruct? Why should we reconstruct? What does that process look like? And like even in the context of traditions, you know, we still find... You know, singing Silent Night uh, at the end of the Christmas service, you know, that's pretty traditional, at Mm -hmm. least in my background. And that's something that our church still does. How how do you, you know, sometimes it's it's important to not just throw away everything. And it's so easy to do once you start questioning, once you start saying, why do we do this? Why, Why does it have to be this way? You can also lose the things that are actually really valuable and meaningful. So... Maybe I'll start with this. How, after you've, in your own journeys of deconstructing elements of your faith, what does it look like to start the reconstruction process? Hmm. I I think an advantage that um, ministers, elders, have that went to seminary mm-hmm. it is there is this cocoon that allows you to do it mm-hmm. and a structure for you to do it which 
you know, everyone in, in my seminary class and everyone in this, our, my seminary went through these moments of crisis, right? When the, te- when the deconstruction was significant enough that made you go, wait, was everybody lying to me? Mm-hmm. Right? They, they dig that hard and that deep to make you uh, totally um, vulnerable yeah. and, and, and makes your brain go, I need, I, I, I need to do something, right? And it's a pausing moment. And it's that that they're searching for. When you deconstruct and do it intentionally and completely, you end up in this place of, oh, my goodness, what's going on? Right. Mm -hmm. But then fortunately they have people who've come out on the other side. (laughs) Right. Surrounding you. Uh, And and so everybody's deconstruction and their point of panic is different. Right. So it may be, you know, that the Bible didn't come as a, as a complete edition. Right. (laughs) Right. That right. People have Mm -hmm. a, a moment of panic, just understanding that or, how there are similar stories in other faith beliefs that are not quote unquote Christian. Mm-hmm. And that becomes a moment of panic. Like, well, wait a minute, what's going on? You are surrounded by people who had that same point of panic that can help you find the pieces to put things back together. And that is the, the, the necessary piece for me of once you start deconstructing, deconstructing, don't do it alone. Hmm. Because there is a moment of panic if you are doing it honestly. Um, and you have to talk. You have to really be reflective. Um, I hope I'm, I'm still staying a little bit on topic, but yeah, what yeah. I love about the deconstruction and reconstruction, it reminds me of the early disciples. Are they saying, I can't wait tables, not because I'm too valuable and too honored to wait tables. It's like, I need to reconstruct the religion that we now believe yeah. in. We, Jesus has deconstructed everything we knew from history. And now we're left to reconstruct it without him. Mm-hmm. That's a panic. That's a good point. Um, and so... Without, without community, deconstruction is extremely dangerous. And I think what we see is almost a generational deconstruction. Mm-hmm. And the danger is as different generations turn inward mm-hmm. because there's a, maybe distrust, tension, frustration with the elder generation. Everyone's in the same place. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard then to find somebody who's walked through it, Mm -hmm. if you're all just starting the journey together. Yeah. What would you say to someone 20, 25, 30, who, you know, their their friend circle is either in the same place or about to follow? What should they do? Let me, I want to, I want to jump on something that James said, is the deconstruction happens in seminary. And I would say that now I was in seminary in 2005 graduated 2009. 
part of being in seminary is you're forced to reconstruct because you're forced to write those papers yep. that help you reconstruct. Yep. So it's not just being surrounded by mm-hmm. people, but it's also you are forced because you got to graduate mm-hmm. to reconstruct. So to the 20, 25-year-olds, and what I'm discovering, even as a pastor and people come in and talk to me about their deconstruction, is they give up in the middle. Mm-hmm. And it's making me think of Navy SEALs. When they're getting trained, right, they're stripping them down so that they can build them back up again. But there are are Navy SEALs that stop the training in the middle. They don't allow it to complete its cycle. Mm -hmm. And what I discover with people who are deconstructing is they don't allow the deconstruction to finish its cycle. And so there's a sense of giving up. So for me, it is keep going, don't give up. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We have been trained in such a binary way in the church mm-hmm. and such a, a right and wrong, black and white, you know, du- dualistic mentality mm-hmm. that we don't know how to live in the gray. And I think that's been a deep disservice. So I think deconstruction is important, but remaining in that tension and allowing the tension to have its way. Uh What held me, and you all know my tricycle, right? Mm -hmm. Experience, the big front wheel, scripture, and tradition. Uh They're all a part of our our religious, let's call it, Uh walk, our, Uh our identity. For me, what held me during the deconstruction phase, both when I was in seminary and that has happened in the last you know, eight years has been, has been experience, Mm -hmm. has been my personal relationship with what I have felt was God. Mm -hmm. And that, that did not, I I couldn't relinquish that. It was too real for me. So that played a huge role, but you have to keep going. You can't just go, that's all wrong. That's that dualistic binary thought process. You, yeah. you, you you keep searching, you keep pressing. I agree. And in, in your and in, in thanks for adding additional clarity on what is the tools that mm-hmm. seminary utilizes to get you to the other side. Absolutely is your peers, absolutely is your professors, but the tangible tool is the papers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That you have to write. Have of to like, write. okay, what is God to you? What does that mean, right? And you got to write you it wrestle, out. And you have mm-hmm. to wrestle with it. And you got to mm-hmm. say, well, where, where are you coming up with that thought? So it's not just this, you know, you just don't go off on writing 10 pages of whatever's just in your head. You got to say, well, where's right. where are some pillars that you're drawing on to develop that thought? Mm-hmm. And the, the tool is the papers. So the now connecting that to your question, what do you tell a 20-year-old, 25-year-old, 30-year-old that has gone through the process of deconstructing and we tell them to keep going and they go, Oh, okay. I'll keep going in my own independent thought. Right. No, no. What are your pillars that you're pulling on? Whether that's your tradition, your experiences, your conversations with other people that are senior to you that has gone through this process, uh, different writings, uh, both religious writings and, uh, civic writing, historical writings. What are you pulling on to try to pull this together? 
And that the tool is writing. So what could we potentially tell a 25-year-old to do something I never did? And that's to journal. Mm. Because you, you, that writing, because when you read your writings, you realize how many gaps are there. Mm-hmm. And now your brain goes into trying to fill those gaps. And that is the reconstruction. You just feel in seminary, I've deconstructed. I am so confused. But the paper's due Friday. Right, got to write it. Got to write it. And With it, footnotes. So you have, yes. to, you have to read other authors. <laughs> You have to read other other experts. Yeah. So would you say to some people, it's better to not go down that road right now? You're not ready? Or, because I feel like that's, I mean, you hear that a lot, at least my, my skewed perception of things is that some people will say that road. It's too dangerous. It's too dangerous. Don't go down that road. Just stay here in the nice, comfortable, what you've got, um, and either live kind of in the mental disharmony, you know, live it, just just accept that there's going to be some things that you're going to have to believe that don't make any sense. And I feel like so, fewer and fewer people are able to abide by that. But yeah. should they should they just hold off on the process? Yeah. So I've never told anybody that. <laughs> Not to go. Um, but you're... You're right. I mean, so we do a foundations class. And one of the first things we tell them in class one, you must commit to me to go all the way through. Mm -hmm. Right? So it's a full 10 weeks. And I say before I open up the notes for class one, you are going to be triggered and you must commit to me that you're going to go all the way through. Because if not, I don't want to be a part of your deconstruction that you can't recover from. Some people are there or either you wander around for 10 years before you're starting to able to put the pieces back together. See, I'm a little more cynical here. And I've never told anybody not to deconstruct because I think the lies, not the lies, the, the questions, the thoughts, they're there. They're not going away. They're, they're not going away. So you're you're just li- the lies that word came from. You're just lying to yourself. You're just pretending, and then faith means nothing at all to you. My cynicism is: I think we are predominantly very lazy Christians. We want to come in to a church on Sunday, have the pastor tell us what to do, what to think, and then we go home and decide if we're going to agree with the pastor or not. And I think we have not been taught how to study ourselves. We've not been taught how to read ourselves. Mm -hmm. We've been taught to find authors. You and I went to a seminary that made us think. Mm -hmm. There are seminaries out there that go, this is this kind of theology. Come in and we will teach you this theology. Mm -hmm. We both went to a seminary that said, we're not going to tell you how to think. As a matter of fact, we're going to destroy your theology, and then we're going to have you build back what you think. Mm -hmm. That's a very rare, those are rare seminaries. So we have not taught, right? We, We send our children to Sunday school and go, this is what you think, this is how you think, Mm-hmm. As opposed to going, learn about who God is, discover on your own, read other authors. Like I remember 
you know, coming into church in the 80s with a book and someone would be like, oh, that's not a good author. Don't read that one. Well, why not? You know, because he doesn't agree with us. Maybe I should read him. So, you know, we are not taught to search out and seek God on our own. The experts stand behind the pulpit. And that's just, I don't think that is the way that it was supposed to be. The word is in you, it's in your heart, in your mind, right? Jesus said. So we're all supposed to be learners. We're all supposed to be seeking God. Yeah. Well, I, I want to build on your point you were saying about in uh, that we're lazy Christians. We want to come in and have the pastor tell us uh, the truth, and then we can decide which part of the truth we want to take with us and which part we're just going to leave on the shelf because God knows my heart, and uh, yeah. <laughs> we're just going <laughs> to ignore that for a while. And I would even take that further. I remember the first time um, uh, speaking in Ghana, and my brother and this one preacher got in this debate back and forth, back and forth. And he said, later, after the debate was over, he said, look, that debate was intentional. I usually wouldn't go into a contention back and forth like that. But the word on the street is, is that American pastors are lazy. Wow. (laughs) And that we don't study broadly. Mm. We don't study what's going on in other cultures, in other countries, in other parts of society that helps to inform our Christian walk. And so in Western society, not only the members sitting in the pews, even our pastors in the pulpit are being accused. You're just lazy. You're not. How does this great big world of ours being influenced by God? And how does your experience, so I love the tricycle example, it is the biggest part of what people's lives are about, their experience. And you're not able to properly translate today's experience into the word? Right. You're lazy. That's what they called us. And so he had to have this whole debate in front of us in order to say, no, some may be lazy, but the ones that are here with you today we do our work. Yeah. We think independently, and you should think independently. And we can have intelligent debates, conversations, because it's going to make us better. So that is the part even for the 20-something-year-old. Your debate and your deconstruction, when you reconstruct, it's going to make you better. It's going to make your ability to witness and to live out a life of principle even better. Um, I was talking to a young man earlier this week, and we were talking about the Bible being not only mystical, but logical, hmm. right? So there are certain things that we do under morality clauses that are just logical. They, they prevent certain things in our life from happening and going really, really bad. And we classify them under a morality clause. You're like, no. Logically, if you do A, B, and C, you're just better off. Right. Logically. And so, but that is what he needed as a person that is 15 to 20 years younger than me. Not just, hey, this minister guy told me do this, 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 and this. And I don't know. Mm -hmm. He's just trying to keep something from me. No, I'm like, look, 
what I'm trying to keep from you is some headache. That's all. And you can accept it or not accept it. And I'm not going to be mad at you. And so those are the different things I think is as we look at deconstruction of what is the argument, what is the reasons and how we live this life under the umbrella and influence of God today. How do you put that back together? Yeah. So if someone is is in a church that maybe isn't supportive of of going through this kind of process, what might be a few, I mean, we've already covered a couple. What might, might you say to them about, you know, you're, you're in a church that has a very set theology. There's a number of questions that you don't feel safe to ask them in the church setting, but you're asking them of themselves. How, how can you, in a healthy way, work through that um, so that your, your faith ends up stronger and not gone? What would be the summary on that, on, on all of what we shared? I think the journey, you know, in the first sentence, if you are within any structure where questions are not allowed, that should be your first red flag, that there's a cultish uh, environment there. The fact that you can't look at a Bible and talk to the pastor and question the theology. It, it, it's so interesting to me that we are so afraid. And, and you think of how many thousands of denominations there are worldwide with all of these different beliefs, and you're going to say, you cannot ask me a question because we have the corner on the market of what is right truth. It, it, the further away from that verbiage I get— the more astounded I am that we ever carried that verbiage. <laughs> and I did, right? You know, it's so it's so filled with privilege and so filled with arrogance that I don't it's just so filled with it. So to be in in any organization, I don't even care if it's a family, you know, if you cannot ask a question, there is there is something wrong that that a person can't respond with further question or with just listening or or what have you, that would be a, a red flag for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would also say take the risk and ask the question. I have been amazed at how many pastors that I've just had ca- casual conversations with and they'll say, well, I'm glad I can talk to you because I can't talk about this with my congregation. Right. So some of you out there have pastors who are open to a conversation and know that their denomination or their uh, whatever, structure. whatever structure they're in doesn't really embrace these kind of exploratory conversations. But they personally do. And they are actually energized when you have the courage to say, hey, I want to talk about XYZ topic. And you're doing it not from an accusatory, but you're inquisitive. Why this? How that? And some of them are like, oh, finally, I get to talk to someone about something that's real right now. 
so th- there's that group as well. So uh, and the other great part about the 21st century is that we are connected globally. Mm-hmm. There are all kinds of groups and conversations that you can get yourself involved in to help you to build these structures. There's all kinds of, of writings. Um, there are different uh, theses uh, that have been put out there by people getting their PhD that is online that talks about all of these different topics mm-hmm. that you now have access to. So it doesn't ex- exist in your local church. It doesn't exist in your denomination, but it exists in the world. And people have done a very good job of putting that knowledge out there. I would say grab it. The other part is, uh, you know, find a way to talk to someone just almost like a third party observer Mm. of this thing called religion, right? So you're not saying, hey, come along and be like me. So the two of us, let's stand back. The three of us, let's stand back. And when religion says this, what do you see? How does it impact us? What does it mean? Is it right? Is it not right? Does religion and tradition have it right on this? And if not, how do you go about creating something, a new thought, a new way of doing things that we hope will be better? Because, and then debate, if we're wrong, what's going to go wrong? Right? So you're making a decision and a a proclamation today that you're going to see the outcomes of it 20 years from now. Mm-hmm. How would you debate that? How would you have a conversation with that? But I, but I like your point from earlier that once you leave college, you have to be intentional about going out and having conversations that are of substance. And you know, we're in we're in this time of year where you get invited to dinner parties and people's houses and have a good meal. I would say. Plan one of those and talk about something that really matters to you like this. Mm -hmm. There's a new book by Brad Jerzak, who is just an excellent author, and it's called Out of the Embers, Faith After Deconstruction. And I just got it in the mail because it it just came out literally. And I look forward to reading it. He's he's one of my favorite authors, and um, he talks about this very subject. Is how do you how do you build back, and and I love the title out of the embers. Mm-hmm. So there there are embers that continue to burn, right? We're deconstructing because we're questioning. We're deconstructing because we're saying something about this is not working. Mm-hmm. We're deconstructing because we're saying all those questions that have lived within me, I'm now bringing out. But there's an ember that remains because. God remains in us. So that ember continues to burn. How do we build back and reconstruct on top of those embers? Yeah. Yeah. Well, no matter where you are, personally, in a journey of deconstruction or reconstruction, we hope that all of you have found something valuable in this conversation that this can help you move along that journey. I've seen so many people either get stuck or waylaid, but as you come back around, as you rebuild those things in your life, 
it brings so much good fruit. So we encourage you today. Keep going. Keep going. And can we make a shameless plug? Yeah, yeah. We have foundation classes. We have a, a Cornerstone Christian Fellowship where we talk about these type of things all the time. We have elders and ministers that will walk with you. Send us an email. Come and connect with us. We have a blog. What's the blog? Staying at the table. No. <laughs> What's it called? It's a blog on our website. It. If you go on it, it, it... Pull up a chair. Pull up a chair. And Thank you, just, Dave, our amazing sound man who helps us all the time. Yeah. I would say be with us. Yeah. Right? Take uh, the journey. Catch, take the journey. Our, ser- our services are online as well. Come and be a part. We, we love this journey. We want to get yeah. this message out to anyone who happens to be in those spaces where you, where you feel you can't connect and where you've actually addressed or tried to communicate with your local pastor, whether you're here in Pennsylvania or throughout the U.S. or outside of the U.S., we're all connected. Connect with us. We will connect with you. Nice. Amen. Well, thank you all. Thank you all. And hope you can find a table to stay at this week. Yes. Staying at the Table is hosted by Dr. Tracy Saletta, Matthew Kissler, and James Beatty, and produced by Hear It Sound and Studio. Got a question or a comment or a topic you want discussed? Email us at adminccf at gmail.com. We'd love hearing from you. And don't forget to subscribe to keep up to date with new episodes coming out. And if you're feeling kind, leave us a review on whatever platform you listen to podcasts. Find out more about staying at the table at cornerstonewestchester.com. Cornerstone.